Hey, what's going on? This is a podcast. It's called Recovered AF. My name is Aaron. I'm uh, 50% 50 of the hosting team. Kyle's the other half, and he's going to give a disclaimer. Yeah, hey, how you doing? Uh, Recovered AF as a podcast is not affiliated with any 12-step organization at all. Uh, Those 12-step organizations don't have spokespeople or representatives in any way. And like we joke around, if they did, they would not pick Aaron and I to, <laughs> to represent them. So um, we're just a couple of gentlemen that are sharing our experience. And today we have a guest that we're hoping to uh, get a lot of his experience out. Uh, I've had the privilege of meeting him once before today. And uh, Aaron is pretty good buddies with him. So I'm going to let Aaron introduce him. Uh, th- thanks, Kyle. Yeah, we got uh, Derek with us today. We took a travel down south. A lot of our I guess it's pretty well known. We live in Wyoming, and a lot of our friends that we've met along the way uh, come from the south south of us, so we took a trip down today to uh, talk to Derek for a while. What's up, man? What's going on? How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, we're doing all right. Good. Heck yeah. Up uh, early this morning and going. we got a big day ahead of us. On this crisp summer day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. The worst. Yeah. Yeah, for, just for those listening, yesterday was the first day of summer, and it was uh, I, I, it, like 50, 50, 55 degrees and rained the whole day. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just absolutely, and it's not much better today. It's miserable. Yeah, and it snowed in the mountains. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, my parents were up camping, and they called me at like noon yesterday, and the old man, they were coming home because they were tired of getting snowed on. So, Really? Yeah. Dang, that's <laughs> crazy, man. First day of summer. Right. Yay. <laughs> yeah. So I think usually, uh, usually where we start and then we sort of go back and forth from there, wherever it goes is, um, we ask people about their first experience with a 12 step group because we've had so many different varying experiences and some people, um, you know, dip their toe in the water for a while and, 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 and are in and out and some people, um, stay, but they don't get into the work right away. And so, like your first experience with the tw- with a twelve step group was like while you were incarcerated, right? Or correct? Or yeah, in a facility. So, like, yep. how did that? How did, maybe just this is what I was actually thinking about yesterday. I don't try and plan this, but maybe just give us a brief description of how, how you got there to start out with because I, I know that the the your picture was pretty bleak before you got to that institution and then we'll take it from there you said you were like a, a, I think the words you used were a street level pharmaceutical rep or something along those lines and <laughs> like th- things weren't things weren't exactly aces right there at the end for you right sure so uh, uh, <clears throat> probably the last year of my drinking and using, uh, I was, you know, selling a wide variety of, uh, you know, illegal drugs. I was using meth on a daily basis. I was using other varieties of things that I wasn't addicted to, and I was drunk daily. Uh, and this was back in 2000. Uh, on April 30th of 2000, I was arrested on a felony drug case for, uh, felony charges, and I started trying to figure out how I was going to beat the system. Fourth uh, of July of that year, I became technically homeless. I moved out of the house I'd been living in and started living in motels. Uh, shortly, motels were unaffordable because I was using so much and, and owed a lot of people a lot of money, 
even though I was selling so much, it just, uh, you know, the, the books weren't balancing, if you will. Uh, and, you know, it was summertime, so I could sleep in my truck or I could sleep in my storage unit, which was the only thing that I was maintaining at that time because uh, I was pretty attached to my stuff. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so 4th of July, became homeless. I was uh, married at the time, and shortly after that, we became separated. And then uh, I was arrested on another felony case in Boulder for domestic violence in September. And then uh, December 14th of 2000, I was arrested on another felony case, and that was a, it became, it started out as a warrant. They were they were trying to arrest me on the warrant, but they also knew that uh, I was involved in what I was involved in and arrested me on 10 more felony charges. Mm. And the result was that I spent six months in county jail while they figured out what to do with me. And uh, Denver at the time had a fairly good drug court system, uh, which I, I think they're trying to go back to. But uh, because I'd never been in trouble in my life, uh, they viewed me as potentially an alcoholic and or a drug addict who had been involved in criminal activity versus a straight up criminal who was, you know, doing what I was doing. Wow. And so I was given the opportunity to go to a community corrections facility that had a 42 day treatment program in it uh, with the understanding that if I screw this up, you know, hot UAs or anything that I, then I was going to go to the penitentiary. This was my one chance. Uh, and it was in that community corrections facility the very first day that I heard this gentleman come in and tell his story. And, and I, I mean, I identified with another human being for the first time in my life. And then other people came in over the course of the of the next week and brought in, you know, speakers and meetings from various fellowships. And uh, and I've been here ever since. No, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say one quick follow up question. I know that you've had a family history of. Um, drug and alcohol. Had you ever heard of a twelve-step program prior to that, or was in that in that jail? Yeah, never. Uh, looking back, uh, you know, my father was an alcoholic, and uh, looking back, I remember a time when I was probably like fifteen, and my parents were divorced, and we happened to be at the same place at the same time. It was a, a religious convention, and I remember him pulling me aside, saying, "Let's go for a walk." And he, I think, what he tried to do was make an amends. And I vaguely remember him pulling a like a green coin or something out of his okay. pocket, but it wasn't an amends as I know an amends <laughs> to be. And he didn't stay sober. Yeah. Uh, but he never said AA or Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know that this existed. I, I remember, uh, you know, I would hear about rich and famous people going to the Betty Ford Clinic yeah. or something like that, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that there was anything twelve step out there or even treatment for somebody like me. I'm I'm glad to hear that just because uh, that's my experience too and I, I don't run across a ton of those so it's nice because I have a similar experience with alcohol and, and my family history and stuff and when I went to rehab, literally I thought that they were just going to like keep me safe for 30 days. You know, I had no idea what AA was. I had no idea what 12-step stuff was. I had no idea I was p- going to go there and participate. I just... So it's nice to hear that and to see that that happens too, because a lot of people that we talk to tend to have had a lot of experience with that. So I can I can definitely relate. Um, <clears throat> one thing I was going to ask, when when you were there, w- 
you said there was multiple fellowships there. Do you participate in multiple fellowships today still, or did you then, or have you always kind of been in one fellowship and that's that's where you stay? Well, I didn't know what my problem was, and I think that it's key to figure out what you are so that you know you can treat what ails you and ultimately so that you can help those that you're you know most beneficial to help. Uh, our book says we can place ourselves to be a maximum service to God and those about us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I needed to find out what was wrong with me. I got a sponsor right away and started to work the steps, and and you know as a result of that, discovered that I'm a meth addict and I'm an alcoholic. And at the time in Denver, there was no Crystal Meth Anonymous, but there was Cocaine Anonymous, and Cocaine Anonymous was a very strong fellowship. They worked the, the steps out of the big book, just like Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't know this initially, but um, that gentleman who had told his story that very first day in that corrections facility um, was uh, you know, a past delegate, past trustee in Alcoholics Anonymous, and had done a lot of work with Cocaine Anonymous in Denver mm. specifically to try and give them a strong foundation with the steps, with the big book, with the traditions and the concepts, so that they could be a strong fellowship that he could send addicts to. And Cocaine Anonymous's first uh, step being powerless over cocaine and all other mind-altering substances, and cocaine and meth being so similar in the way that you use them and some of the symptoms of the paranoia and, and whatnot, I felt very at home in Cocaine Anonymous. I had a home group there for seven years. Um, I also wound up um, going to Al-Anon for quite a few years and had a home group there, did a set of steps there. But when my first daughter was born, I had to narrow it down. I couldn't have three three home groups, three fellowships. Yeah. I had I had one. You know, I had to pick one. And and through because of a lot of circumstances, it wound up being AA. Okay. And just recently, have started going back to CA. Um, in fact, I was at a, at a meeting last night. Um, and and Al-Anon, I go to when I can, but um, I don't know that I would see myself going back there as a member mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. I'm glad too that we t- you're talking about you know finding that identification and and um, I don't know be- the reason why I am is because uh, I'm an opiate addict and I'm an alcoholic but um, you know as, again we talk about we talk about um, outside issues I think we've referenced that you know and and there's a reason for that and there's a reason why we can talk about these things on this podcast because we're not affiliated with anything and so we can talk about you know whatever it is we like. But uh, identification was important for me, and um, I felt like a lot of times um, when I was just sitting in, a, in an AA room that I was omitting half of my story, because my late-stage stuff came all with opiates. Man, it was it was So, you know, when I'm talking to late-stage drinkers, I'm like, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if this is the place for me. And I went back out, you know, trying to figure it all out and everything, and <laughs> it was just the same. <laughs> just didn't learn anything new well sort of anyway but so like that 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 identification is real um so maybe tell us like how you went through gaining that identification it wasn't like i I guess i'm trying to direct this question but because it wasn't because somebody went into a room and told you to hold up your hand and say you are this or you are that right it was because somebody took the time and took you through the work can you explain a little bit what that what that looked like Sure. So, I mean, when I first got to treatment, they gave me a big book. First thing they could do, give you a big book. And, and uh, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. But then there was a, like an 80, 
hundred-year-old guy, I don't know, <laughs> yeah. uh, who came in there once a week and read it to us, and that was nap time because it was hot in this attic. And and um, but I got a sponsor right away, and um, I tried to read this book to myself, and it, you know, I didn't really understand how it was going to do anything for me until the sponsor started reading it to me, and because he was reading it to me in a way that he was not reading at me but he was um, turning statements into questions. And when it said to pray, we would pray. When it said to do something, we would do it. Um, and, you know, inviting me to bring my experience to it as he was bringing his experience to it, then um, I was able to see that I have this allergy, this abnormal reaction. Once I put alcohol or meth into my body, I cannot stop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, meth is a very addictive substance. But I could, I was selling to people who would buy a half a gram, and they'd do it that night and not come back to me for a couple of months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I know that not everybody had the experience that I had. So I had this abnormal reaction to meth and to alcohol that I didn't have to everything else. Yeah. I didn't have it to cocaine. I didn't have it to uh, to ecstasy. I didn't have it to, to the opiates yep. that I did. Um, and then, then I also had this this mental obsession that that my brain would tell me it will be different this time. Um, that I deserve it, that it's been a bad day, that it's been a good day, and and that uh, I had that to both of those things, that coupled with the, the, the physical craving and the mental obsession, that I could clearly say that I am a meth addict and an alcoholic. But when I'm in each of those fellowships, if I'm in AA, I'm an alcoholic, right. and that's what I'm there to talk right. about. And if I'm in CA, I'm an addict. And I'm there to talk about that. Yeah. And it's only in very rare situations like this, or if I'm asked specifically to talk in a treatment situation about both, mm-hmm. that I identify as both. Yeah. I never identify myself as an alcoholic and an addict. Yeah. It's not necessary. Right. Uh, yeah, I would 100% agree with that, too. Um, so when when I met you, you were speaking at a, a conference that we had up in northern Wyoming. Um how did you go from incarcerated, getting a sponsor and starting the work to the life that I see today? You know, you 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 look like a very well put together person, and I've I've heard your story where you talked about that you used to kind of I don't want I don't know if goth is the right word, but yeah, you were you were one way. How did how did that transformation take place? Was it quick? Did it take years um, to where now you are seemingly? a very uh, happy, healthy individual. And nobody would know, like no, nobody, none of <laughs> yeah. your neighbors, I'm sure looking at your, you know, very lovely home would know that you were <laughs> meth addict, <laughs> goth meth addict drug dealer, I'm sure. Yeah. So it's just, that's the good shit though. That's what I like, right? Yeah, the transformation that takes place. Undercover. <laughs> yes. I was in a meeting last night and this guy's like, it's basically like we're secret agents for God. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was goth because, I mean, well, first of all, I like the music, but second of all, I mean, I was like, if I've, I've been feeling separated from everybody on this planet my entire life, if I meant to feel that way, I might as well look that way. Mm-hmm. Dyed my hair purple and blue and pink and, you know, depending on flavor of the week and only wore black and only went out and at nighttime if I could help it. And, um, then I got here and started to work steps and you know, you're, they were talking about spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, entire psychic change, and they may as well have been speaking Chinese. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
there's a, a couple of places in our book that, that talk about Dr. Jung describes it as emotional displacements and rearrangements that I could get on board for. And then at the back of the book, there's an appendix that says that this is um, a personality change sufficient to overcome alcoholism. And those two things coupled, if you, if that's what you're talking about, when you're talking about a spiritual awakening, then I can understand that because that's what I've been looking for in the bottom of a bottle at the end of a pipe. Uh, you know, all those times I dropped acid, I was looking for emotional displacements and rearrangements. And I was promised that if I stayed here and I did the steps precisely as they're laid out in our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have an awakening that was as strong or stronger than any one of those LSD trips, but it would come from within and flow into the lives of others. Now, I thought these guys were a little tipsy when they told me this, but uh, I had no reason to doubt that they had been where I had been and they were incapable of going there then because, you know, I just, I saw it in their eyes, you know? And, uh, you know, it took me, I know you guys had the experience of going through the steps fairly quick and I didn't have that experience. It probably took me nine months to go through my first set of steps. And, but on the other side of that nine months, I was a changed person. Like people were describing me. I came up behind a group of people who were talking about me and I was like, oh, this is it. Like I'm going to bust them, you know, like I knew people were always talking shit about me and this is it. And they didn't. This guy was describing me as this kind of horrible troll little, little guy who was sitting cross-armed in meetings and <laughs> scowling at people. And that's not how I envisioned myself at the beginning. And, and then he t was telling these people about the transformation he had seen come over me. And I was like almost moved to tears because I hadn't seen that in myself. Mm. Right. So, um, that was, that was the first, the first awakening. Now I've worked the steps many, many times since then. And if I'm taking somebody else through the steps, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a quick trip through, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not going to wait for them. If they're going to take time and inventory, I'm not going to sit around, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's been many trips through the steps. There's been many times that I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous actively going through this, through steps with other people, actively being a service and active in a home group. And I get into dark places and I, you know, come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as I'm living it now. And I need to go through a set of steps and have a fresh awakening and have, feel a fresh flow of, of power flow into my life. And the result of that is, you know, I have a beautiful wife. I have two little girls. I have a good job. I have, you know, a, a nice home. That doesn't mean I'm not still in the dark sometimes, mm -hmm. you know. And um, my boss doesn't know my story. He doesn't need to know my story. My neighbors don't know my story. They don't yeah. need to know my story. But it has been appropriate at times for that to happen. And in fact, my last boss, my last CEO, um, it was funny because when he started at my company, my wife, first thing she said was, whatever you do, do not tell him you're in <laughs> AA. Because <laughs> she just kind of knows me and right. it's going to slip out or something, right? <laughs> so he comes to talk to me on, on the first not the first meeting, but the first time that we just kind of had a one-on-one. -on -one. And I realized when he walked in the room, my daily reflections book was sitting next to my computer. So I just kind of like nonchalantly turned it over. <laughs> and a little while later, he came around my desk to throw something away in my trash can. And he saw the, the edge of the spine. And he's like, 
oh my God, are you a friend of Bill W? <laughs> and I was like, you wouldn't know to say that if you weren't. And he's like, I'm canceling my meetings. We're going to talk about this. And he just, he had almost a year himself. He wow. had, he had, you know, gone to Parker Valley Hope's treatment center here in Denver and almost lost the house, almost lost the wife, almost lost the kids, you know, all of that stuff and had just been made CEO of our company. And it was appropriate in that circumstance for me to Mm. tell him some of my story yeah. not all of it you know I, right. I still don't really know this guy very well right. but yeah. sometimes it is appropriate um i was gonna ask if you could when when you got here you had i don't know how many felonies did you say you had sitting sitting over your head when you were in that jail like there were 16 charges okay but there was only two convictions okay and so how did you go from like how did you how, escape all of those legal charges or how did that go about happening? Could you go into some of that for us? So one of the, one of the convictions was a deferred judgment, meaning if I'm good and I follow all the rules, all of the uh, agreements that we've made in this conviction, then uh, after two years that, that will go away. It will be as if it never existed. The other conviction was, was to stick for life and, and I was okay with that. One out of 16 is good. Uh, it's more than fair. And I was doing this uh, I don't, because I wanted to, because I didn't want to be the man that I'd become. I wasn't doing it because the judge said I had to. Right. And um, I, when I was in the halfway house, I, I was told that there was a meeting down at the Denver Drug Court on Tuesday nights. And it wasn't your typical you know, AA meeting. It was more of kind of like a public information meeting where members of fellowships will come in and tell their story and talk a little bit about what AA is and isn't or Al-Anon is or isn't. And, and I started to attend that. And when I got out of the halfway house, I continued to attend that and, and started being the one who got some of the speakers. And in that process, I befriended the district attorney. And, um, in fact, at a, one point, he was like, sometimes I have meetings that run late on Tuesdays, and, and I don't want to be the one that causes this meeting not to happen. Here's a key to the courtroom. <laughs> and I was like, dude, don't you know who I am, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so it was coming up time for the two-year deferred judgment to like kind of go away, but I don't know how that's done or what, how, you know, what to do about it. I just know that I need to be the one to initiate the process. And so I was talking to him one night and I was like, Hey Greg, you know, uh, what do I do? Like, how do I do that? And he started to tell me, and then he was like, you know what? You're going to have to take a day off of work because you're gonna have to go down to the police station, the courthouse and everything and get your files and get all this information out of there and fill out all this paperwork. And you're probably going to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I'd be happy to do it for you. It won't take any time at all. If you'll call me tomorrow, leave me a voicemail with your case number. Uh, I'll do it for you before I turn it in. Then I'll put it before you make sure that it's right. And, and I was like, well, that's so generous. I can't thank you enough. And he goes like, you know, this is so cool. You've come a long way in two years and getting your life together. And you're, you know, you're going to walk away a free man with no felony convictions. And I was like, well, that's not true. Cause I still have that other one, but totally. Okay. I got one out of 16 and I'm good. He goes, I forgot. I have another case on my docket right now that I wanted to compare to yours. Can you, can you leave me that other case number just so I can look at it and compare the cases and, Sure, no problem. So I left him both case numbers, and he called me a few days later, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm on my way to my home group. And he said, oh, cool. Can you can you meet me at Starbucks on, on Colfax? And I want to show you that paperwork before I put it in front of the judge on Monday. And I said, sure. So 
he put it in front of me and, and it, it looked very official and he was right. I probably would have screwed it up. And, and, um, he kind of had this shitty grin on his <laughs> face while I was looking at the paperwork and I was like, what's up? And, and he said, well, I, I want to show you this too. And he said, I don't know that the judge is going to do this. And technically it would have needed to have been done within 120 days of your original sentencing. But I'd like to petition the judge to seal your other felony, if that's okay with you. And he may and he may not, but he he had already done some other things for me, um, you know, that I hadn't asked for. So uh, it was worth asking. And uh, he petitioned the judge, and, and the judge signed off on it. And so for like 150 bucks or something, I had to go down and file it with the FBI and the CBI and the DEA and everything and, and walked out of there with... Uh, I have one misdemeanor conviction to my name. That's <laughs> wow. pretty. It's amazing. Yeah, I have a. Not to. I just. I. I had this perception of the legal system when I got sober, and uh, they were always out to get me. And I have a somewhat similar experience where, <clears throat> after like a year, the, you know, and I had case reviews every week and p-test three times a week and the you know just all of these hoops to jump through and uh the the ada that was prosecuting my my trial uh had a a similar experience where he actually went to the judge and and requested for me without me even knowing to have some of the like some of that stuff let go and stuff because he's like he could see the transformation you know and it it i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about like that that really happens you know and um I was just blown away by that. And then towards the end of my trial and towards the end of everything and my case reviews, the ju- the judge was recommending people in the courtroom to come talk to me after the <laughs> after the court and everything. So I um my perception has been changed on on the legal system and and if I play ball, not always, but sometimes, you know, like people notice that and and it works out for me. It just blows my mind. So That's really cool. Yeah, I love that. Go ahead. Oh, um, well, let's see. Uh, one thing you talked about before we started recording was because we had talked about Kyle. So Kyle can sometimes ha- gather up a lot of proteges all at one time. And um, for a minute there, I had, you know, a few going at one time. And we had talked to my cousin about the idea of taking somebody through the steps um, like a group, yeah, like multiple in, people in a group format. And then you said that you were um, doing that right now with some guys that you're working with. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you about that. Have you found that to be um, any different, more beneficial, less dif- any different than taking people through the work uh, one person at a time, or is it pretty much the same same shit? It's just a matter of time efficiency, doing it all together as a group. I didn't know how it was going to go. I mean, I've led big book like like studies in my house a couple of times where it was a big group, you know, 20, 30 people. And, and that was a really cool experience. And th- But this is, you know, I have, I've got uh, five, four guys and a girl here. And then I've got one in New Hampshire. And they were all kind of at about the same place where they needed to start steps. And only one of them had I ever done the steps out of the big book with. Mm-hmm. And um, I just don't have the time to meet with them all one-on-one, right. you know? So I proposed the idea to each one of them individually and said, look, what do you think about doing this? 
And if you need one-on-one time, we'll schedule it. And when it comes to the fifth step, we can figure that out when we get there. Like we can fifth step individually or fifth step as a group or fifth step. You can fifth step with each other. I don't really care. But what do you think about trying this? And they were all game. And one of them's coming from Buena Vista. He drives three hours each way. Oh, wow. And the one in New Hampshire can can Skype in. Yeah. And uh, it has been really cool because, you know, they've all been sober for a while. So they all have experience too, you know, right. it's not necessarily, uh, the experience that I've had, but they'll ask questions that I wouldn't have asked, or they'll share an experience that I wouldn't have shared that just opens up conversation that uh, we go down paths. We wouldn't have gone down otherwise. And, uh, I don't know about them, but I'm getting a hell of a lot out yeah, of it, yeah, you yeah. know, and we meet, we meet for a long time. We meet for an hour and a half to two hours each time. Uh, because the one's driving three hours each way. And then we try and go to breakfast and, and go to a meeting while he's up here, you know. Uh, he's also on our state convention committee, so we're trying to time the meeting so that he comes up when he also has to go to that committee meeting, yeah. you know, if it works out. Mm-hmm. But he's willing to do it regardless, you know, either way. So it's been good. What? So I think I know who that first sponsor of yours was. Did he impress upon you from the from the get that it, sponsorship was an important part of this deal for you? Like, I mean, like how how long were you in the fellowship before you started taking other guys through the work? Well, I mean, when we first started meeting, our first meeting probably, we talked about what sponsorship is and what sponsorship isn't. Uh-huh. And uh, he said, you know, sponsorship is commencing this path shoulder to shoulder. And that he was no better than me and I was no better than him. And I didn't really get that for a while, probably right. not until I was in my fifth step. But he asked me if I was willing to do three things. If I would be on time to our meetings, because that was a matter of respect. And if I couldn't be, I just needed to let him know. If I was willing to go to any lengths for victory over alcoholism. And I said yes, because I expected that's probably what he wanted to hear, not right. knowing what I was signing <laughs> up for. And... um and if I was willing to pass this on to somebody else when I was done. And I, again, probably said yes, because I expected that's what he wanted to hear. But also the idea that my horrible past could be uniquely beneficial to somebody else. I think deep down inside, we all want to be useful and we all want to yeah. you know, have purpose in our lives. Mm-hmm. And if that's how I'm going to get there, sign me up. Like that's the biggest carrot you could ever dangle in front of me. So, I mean... I didn't start sponsoring until I was through my 12th step because, right. or at least in my 12th step, because I was, you know, having had a spiritual awakening as the result. Right. Um, I know people who tell their people they're working with that you can sponsor if you're one page ahead or one step ahead. Of, and I don't, that's not what I do. That's right. not how I was sponsored. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started probably around nine months and I, the first few didn't stick around. I don't know where they're at. Yeah. But, um, you know, I've, I've had a number, I don't, I don't know what it is, but, um, and, and some of them have gone through steps, traditions and concepts, and then they've drank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of them have come back. Is it a, uh, I don't mind, like, is it a head scratcher when it happens? Cause this was, so this is, this is what I experience is I'm like, I don't know what's going on, you know, in this person's, I don't know if, whether they're being honest with me. I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm taking them all through the same way, following the same formula that's laid out in our book. And, um, 
you know, I can, I can, it looks to me like they're, things are sounding right. Things are looking right. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're just gone, right. They're out there drinking. Um, and I just, like, I can have, like, it's just, a, it's a head scratcher for me a lot of the times. Cause I'm like, to me, it looks like everything's going all right. And then sometimes I'll find out a little bit later down the line, um, a big chunk of truth will come out and I'm like, Oh, well they just were clearly being incredibly dishonest. And then, then it makes sense. But like, do you spend a lot of time like head scratching or just like, eh, you know, this between them and God, like when that happens, when it's like, it seems like everything's going according to the last guy that's still sober, but then all of a sudden this guy isn't, but they seem to be doing the same thing. Do you have that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And you know, if, if I haven't been working for with them for very long and maybe we don't know each other very well or, they just kind of fall off the face of the planet. Maybe not necessarily, but if we've been together for a while, I don't, I don't care what you say. There's a piece of us. We're going to almost fall in love with each other. You know, like I, when we're talking about the type of deep, intimate soul searching stuff that we talk about, we're connected for life, you know? Um, and when they go away, it hurts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, there's been a couple of times where I could, I knew what it was. I knew that they refused to make that amends yeah. or those amends. Mm -hmm. um, but then there's been a couple other times where, yeah, I didn't know what it was. And then after the fact, it turned out they told me they made the amends, but they lied or they, there was a piece in the fifth step that they held to themselves. That's yeah. typically what it is. It's yeah. typically one of those two things. Yep. That's been my experience too. Is and I what I've found is my intuition is usually better than I think. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I've had conversations with you where I'm like, I just I'm not sure if that guy is doing this. And then lo and behold, we get to it and it's like, oh yeah, but like my intuition was I mean, it's not always right. <laughs> like sometimes mm -hmm. I'm way off, but like the more I do the thing, the more I kind of get that feeling of like something doesn't feel right or correct. Mm -hmm. And and then for me, it's the courage to have that conversation with them and, and kind of call them on that. And like, hey, man, like where, you know, like just have that conversation. And that's something I've been doing recently with this new guy I'm working through is just asking for courage to have those conversations before we meet. That way I'm not stamping his shit, you know, just saying, oh, yeah cool man all right like having the courage to to be be truthful with them but i agree when i do that there's a connection not like anything else yeah and i gotta know that i might get bit in the process of doing that yeah. right but i got i got a old guy in fact i saw him last night and he used he used to liken it he for a while he had a a neighbor who had this dog that was on a very short chain and he kept him on the chain 24 hours a day mm. right and he said there was this horrible thunderstorm one night and the dog got himself kind of like tangled up and he, he, he was so scared and he knew he had to climb the fence and get the dog off the chain and he was going to get bit, mm. but he had to do it anyways. And he likens it to that. Exactly. When you see somebody going down that path, when you see somebody doing that, I have to tell them the truth. I have to do it in a loving and compassionate way. And I know that I'm probably going to get bit in the process. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, man. Yeah, that's the truth. That's pretty accurate. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So I have a question. I I can't remember for sure. So um, you coming through the corrections facility and having a good, ex you know, get getting sober through there. Is that something that you participated in as a result? Do you still do that? Like, are you, 
you know, did you go to jail or prison meetings? Do you have any kind of skin in the game in that still? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not currently, once my schedule gets a little straightened out, I'd like to get into another correctional facility. Um, I've done a couple of different rotations going in. I did, I want to say three years taking a cocaine anonymous meeting into the Denver County jail. Uh, and then about two years in AA taking a different meeting into a different building in the Denver County jail. And then I was a a district corrections chair, Mm -hmm. um, and have been, you know, a little involved in Colorado's corrections conference. Um, so yeah, and it's, it's. I, I find it to be rewarding work. I find it to be a way in which I can pay back for those who brought the message to me because if, if they hadn't freely given their time to come into that facility, I don't know that I would be here. Right. Um, but I know that I'm not there necessarily to hook people. Mm-hmm. That uh, especially in a county jail, they're probably not going to be there for a super long time. It's not like in a penitentiary. Penitentiary, there are groups and people are in there and they get sponsors and work steps and, you know. Right. But in a county jail, and they're more to plant seeds. Yeah. But I saw a guy last night at that meeting who's been sober in Cocaine Anonymous for probably 15 years because of that meeting that we took into that county jail. Wow. And... It was at a time where I was thinking, I think I want to stop doing this because nobody was paying attention. Yeah. It was the CA meeting and they would come in and they would grab pamphlets and they would go to the back of the room and they would make little like Coke bindle envelopes out of the pamphlets and then throw them at me on their way out the room. <laughs> and I was like, fucking assholes. Nobody's yeah. paying attention. This is a waste of my time. And uh, I was at a speaker meeting one night on a Saturday night. This lady in Denver was celebrating her 50th AA anniversary, and we went to listen to her talk. And, and this guy came running up to me after the, after the meeting. We were getting ready to leave and go, go get something to eat. And he's like, dude, were you at the county jail on Thursday? And I was like, yeah, but you would only know that if you were at the county jail on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, wait right here, wait right here. And I was like, oh, man, my friends are going to leave, and I'm worried about me, right? (laughs) And he comes running back, and he he goes, Mom, this is the guy. And his mom started crying. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. And she said, let me explain. And she pulled out her coin, and she had like 25 years or something. And she said, I've been taking my son to AA meetings for years, but he's a crackhead. And he had never, I didn't know Cocaine Anonymous existed. And he, I picked him up from jail this morning, and he couldn't stop talking about this CA meeting that somebody brought into the jail the other night. And he said, Mom, can I go to that speaker meeting with you tonight? But tomorrow, I need to find a CA meeting. <laughs> and he's been around ever since. And, it, you know, I don't think that it's about me taking credit. It's just that we don't know when the seeds are going to take root, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I feel like, because um, I've been going to a treatment center we have up there, for two and a half years pretty regularly and it seems like every time I'm about to just be like what am I doing something ends up you know kind of keeping me around whether it's a new person or our mutual friend Ryan who's been on the podcast or something that I see him there and it's like oh man I got to keep coming you know like just Mm -hmm. some reason just keeps me around and sometimes it's working with someone sometimes it's just seeing that little flicker of hope or something Mm -hmm. so yeah I definitely know that feeling and i that's why I keep going back every time I'm like, I'm not going anymore. It's like, all right, I'm back again. So, 
I suck at it. Um, it was funny. I was telling Kyle, uh, I have a, I have a sponsee that was, um, that I told, I told him, you know, and, and, in the nice, you know, kind, compassionate way possible that he was doing 11 steps of a 12 step program. And then I needed him to get out there and, and sitting inside the comfort of our home group once a week, wasn't enough that I needed to get him to get out there and carry the message into some other meetings, you know, into the treatment center or wherever we're at. And I was telling Kyle about this, and Kyle was like, you told somebody else to do that? <laughs> was like, that was my kind and loving and tolerant yeah. way. Uh, <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so anyway. Um, so one thing I know about you is that, like, you, you talked about you had had, um, you've hosted some of those big book studies at your house, and then um, you, you moved a couple years ago. And when you moved to your current location, that I don't know, I don't know the backstory, but I'm maybe guessing that you just the the fellowship that you crave maybe wasn't already implanted here the way it was where you came from, and so you took it upon yourself and you started a new group. And I'm just wondering, like, because I think like I think that I want to do those things, but then when I try and do those things, it's easy for me just to sit around and bitch about the way things are and not really do anything about it. Or in an effort to go do something about it, my negativity about the way things are um, driving everyone away. So I'm I'm actually having the opposite effect of I'm not creating the fellowship. I'm driving people away from me. Um, like what in you like drives you to do those things? Because I mean, it doesn't seem like much hosting a big book study, but you're committing yourself, your house, your family to something for an undetermined amount of time, you know, maybe a half a year. It depends on like, that's a, it's a big commitment to take on those responsibility. And like, we don't have leaders in our fellowship, but we do have people that are um, willing to step up to the plate and be in action. And you're one of those people. And I'm just honestly not, and I'm just wondering what that drive comes from to like do those things and start, you know, start a, a, a meeting to get that fellowship where you're in, in your new ho- location and those kinds of things. Uh, the the study in our home was um, that's how, that's how I was brought up. That old guy that came and told his story in that halfway house that day uh, and helped CA out. We I wound up going out to his house for a couple of years before he passed away, and and he took a bunch of us. Uh, I'd say actually a handful of us through the traditions and the concepts a couple of times, and then he said, "I'll I'll take you all through the book if you'll each bring somebody." And he had been doing big book workshops like that for years. He was kind of known for it. Mm. And this was going to be his last one because he knew he was dying. And he said, I'll do it if you'll each bring somebody. And that first meeting, he said, I'm going to do this so that you each know how to do it next. Will you commit to that? And when I said yes, I meant it. And I didn't know when or how or what that was going to look like, but I meant it. And, um, a couple of years later, like some of us were just talking about how we we missed that. We missed getting together on Wednesday nights, breaking bread with each other, having a potluck, and then just reading out of the book, and it being open to anybody who wanted to go through the book, that it wasn't restricted to AA. And we had AACA, Al-Anon, and then every once in a while we'd get somebody from like OA or one of the sex addict fellowships. They wouldn't stick around, but they knew that they could come. But it was, you know, it was a good solid group of people. And we did the book, and then we did the traditions and then concepts, and then we went back and did the book again. And it wound up being six years. Oh. 
And at the end of the six years, I was like, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, by that time, we had two little girls, and and um, and I kind I kind of like to do it again. I don't know if people drive all the way up here, but but when we moved up here, when we moved um, from the Denver metro area north, about thirty minutes, you know. We're not that far away, but it, you have to drive through a cornfield to get to my neighborhood, yeah, so it feels like we're far away. And I was driving to Denver to my home group, and you know I had a commitment down there. And I, I just the more I thought about it, the more I was like, "There's more than enough groups down there. There's more than enough members down there. They don't need me, you know." And it wasn't a self pity thing. It was just like I'm not being a maximum service. Mm-hmm. And in the, the the town that I'm in, there's three meetings a week. Uh, so a buddy of mine and I, we were, we were talking about it and he was kind of in between home groups too, because he just moved to Boulder. Um, and so we, we just kind of toyed around with the idea, should we start something or not? And it wasn't like born out of resentment. It was born out, out of need. So we very intentionally did this and we got out a map and mapped out exactly where the groups are on the North end of town and what days of the week and where, you know, all of that. And we saw that there is a huge geographic area on the north end of town where there are no meetings. Mm -hmm. And it is the fastest growing area in between where I'm at and Denver. I mean, there's 25,000 homes being built there or slated to be built there right now. And there's no AA groups. So we, we start, we started one and, and, um, we just had our, I mean, it's been uh, a, almost a year and a half that we've been going, and it's been a little slow going. We get people come once or twice, and then they don't come back, but we just got our sixth home group member joined the other night, and nice. he's a good friend of ours who's come a couple of times. He's like, I'm doing this. I'm joining. Um, but it's been it's been good. It's kind of like we don't, we, we put the word out that we're there, but we're not publicizing it. Yeah. We're in all the meeting lists. It's like mm-hmm. it. it it will grow organically, yeah. you know? Um, but there are times where I'm like, did we do the right thing? Are we in the right place? I want a bigger group, you yeah. know? Well, it's my home group. I can go to other meetings to get what we're lacking for now. Right. Yeah. When I um, started that DAA fellowship, it was sort of similar in that that there was actually some planning that went on because I'm like, you know, we're a fellowship for addicts, but we use the big book and uh, called a cousin of mine that's in another addict fellowship and asked him what night they didn't have meetings and they didn't have meetings on Sunday nights. And because of my work schedule, I I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to a meeting to open it up. And since it was just me and uh, our friend at the beginning, it had to be on a weekend. And Sunday just happened to be the only nights there weren't any of those other meetings. And so, yeah, Sunday night it was, and it just sort of worked out like that. And it's the same thing. For a while, it was just her and I would just sit there and we would bullshit for... 45 minutes and then go home and then this guy and our mutual friend would drop by and then uh sometimes we'd have a meeting and sometimes we would just bs and then uh and then i think i picked up a guy and he became a home group member and then uh we started getting guys from the treatment center to show up and picked up um ryan ended up coming up and um then he brought a few guys and now we're up to six home group members and there used to be a lot of sundays where i'd say man, I really hope nobody shows up because I want to pick a topic and I don't want to chair a meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And now that's never an option anymore. Now we have a rotating chairperson, you know, like the the idea that nobody's going to show up to our Sunday night meeting isn't realistic anymore. It's pretty cool. Right on. That's been over the course of like, what, two and a half years. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. taken a minute. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're you're meeting his grown organically though. You're not yeah. out freaking. I can't exactly streets go and announce it in yeah. fellowships or anything sure. like that. But so. yeah, it's it's growing organically and the way it should with people working with people and bringing them there and doing the work. It's cool. So uh, I was going to ask, we haven't named the conference that, that you usually help participate in, and I don't I don't know if we're allowed to or not, so we just have kind of kept it out of our... Mm-hmm. But um, you were very active in that, in that conference year after year. Uh, how'd you get plugged into that? And uh, what keeps you uh, participating year after year after year? Uh, that first sponsor I had, told me about it and I was like mm, that sounds boring <laughs> um, <laughs> that sounds like Vegas. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't have a lot of money and I don't know if I want to spend money on that and then he gave me a set of workshop cassette tapes at the time yeah uh, to listen to and he said listen to these and we'll talk about it next week and I listened to him and I was like oh my god I don't know what they're doing but I have to be there yeah. and I had like nine months or something to save up my money to get there. And uh, my first one was in 2002. And it's just been a commitment. Like, I wouldn't miss it if I can help it for anything. And I haven't, I haven't missed one yet. This year will be my, my 19th year. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the type of guy who just bulldozes in and says, I'm going to get involved here. I'm the type of guy who sits quietly at the edge of the room trying to hope nobody notices me (laughs) and if I can blend into the wallpaper I'll figure it out Mm -hmm. and that doesn't stick around very long because I don't know I don't think that's God's will for me it doesn't seem to be apparent but that's what my brain tells me anyways uh I was I guess it was in 07 uh I was married and my wife had been on a couple of committees and she's in Al-Anon and she said, um, well, you want to go to the, it was the very first committee meeting for the, or I guess it was in 06 for the 07 conference. And she said, do you want to go with me to the committee meeting? And I was like, are you guys having breakfast potluck, right? I'll go. <laughs> and I literally went for that reason. And when they went around and introduced themselves, I told everybody that's why I was there. And at the end of the meeting, there was one little piddly service position <laughs> left open that nobody, there wasn't another body to yeah. take it. And I took it and, uh, I literally did almost nothing for the entire year except come for breakfast every month. And, uh, but I participated in the meetings. Mm. Like I spoke up, I had a voice. Um, and at the end of that conference, uh, how it works is this year's chair asks the next year's chair to do it. And then the board of directors ratifies that. And, um, and she asked me to do it. And I didn't think I was worthy. I didn't think I could. I didn't think I had the time. There was a bunch of other stuff going on. I had another service commitment in in, in another fellowship, and but apparently it wasn't God's will. Yeah. So I chaired the the 2008 conference, and then um, how it works after that is once you've chaired the conference, you automatically rotate rotate onto the board of directors. Uh, so I I did that and participated in that, and then did a couple of year stint as the as the president. Uh, which means almost nothing other than you have to sign the contracts. Yeah. And um, and then I rotated off uh, a few years ago and, and merely counsel when, when needed uh, as far as that's concerned. But um, the funny thing is that that very first year in 2002, 
the woman who chaired that that year wound up becoming my mother-in-law. Mm. Wow! And uh, and my and my wife's whole family is involved. Uh, it, it hasn't been on purpose at all, but um, my brother-in-law, and my sister-in-law have, have both been very involved, and and um, uh, my my whole family have been very involved. Just because we're a recovery family. Uh, on my wife's side and, and I've been blessed to, to marry in, into that. It's just funny the way that that goes where you try and sit back and not participate and God has other ideas. That's like that first year that I went to it um, about, I don't know, somewhere around the new year. Uh, it was told to me that they needed a literature chair and that I'd be a good candidate for it. And I'm just like, Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> like all I had to do was buy some books and take them up there. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, but it was, it was terrible. It was like, I guess the same thing. I mean, I didn't feel like I could do that and showed up to the meetings every week and got to meet some pretty incredible people. And then, and then it's, it's tough for me to get that week off of work. And then, um, the, and in fact, it was a month early that year because of some booking problems is why I was able to go and then stumbled into the conference again a couple of years ago and then finally was able to make it this year. And the same thing happened. And Vanessa called me and as we had her on, a, I don't know, about a month ago. And she's kind of a big deal because she's the chairperson this year. And mm-hmm. um, and she called me a couple of weeks later and said, I'm going to need some help from you, man, with this conference. <laughs> and I was like, damn it. You know, I think I'm just going to go up there and do what I want and not have to participate and not have to contribute. And God's like, nah, man, I'm going to need something from you, buddy. So it's just funny how that works. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, we're about f- 55-ish minutes in. you have any other things you want to ask about, anything you want to discuss before we wrap her all up? No, um, I don't think so, man. No. I just, uh, I don't know. I really enjoy like hearing your story and I know that it was, you know, more of a and a format today, but like the, the things that I used to enjoy is like the, uh, I don't know. I used to be amazed at what people could surpass and and surmount. But when I look at your story and I see where you're at today and and the life, the quality of life that you have today from that dude that was uh, in that shitty hotel room getting arrested with seven, you know, 16 felony charges hanging over his head. I mean, it's just a testament to the power of these 12 steps and the power of God. And I just, I don't know, you're a living example of that. It's not, it's not in the realm of theory. I can look at your life and I can see what's happening, man. And, I just appreciate you, and I appreciate you for sitting down and doing this with us. Absolutely, yeah. I thank you for letting us come down and be in your house and do this. And I, I've heard your story one time before, and I was blown away. And I was like, I told Aaron when we started this thing, we were like, we we got to get Derek on here just because you, like he said, you just you're an example of what this program can do in people's lives. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, I. I believe that the third step is is uh, is not just a decision to go through the rest with the rest of the steps. It's a, an intention that my life is meant to be a demonstration to others, and I don't know what that's going to look like. And a lot of it doesn't feel very good as I'm going through it. And and it is, it is meant walking through deaths and births and 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 some very difficult things. And 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 I haven't had to get loaded over it. And and that's mm-hmm. that's the deal, right? That mm-hmm. we we can live life and not get loaded in the process and and just the other thing i i like to say is that you know just because things look good on the on the outside that 
it's not always, you know, reality on the inside. And, and for anybody who happens to, to, to listen to this, if, if you're, you know, 30 days or 30 years sober and, and you're not feeling so good, speak up about it. Mm. You know, uh, I'm, I'm somebody who can get into dark places and I can, I can dwell in that dark place for a long time. And sometimes a long time means two weeks and sometimes a long time means eight, eight or nine months. Mm -hmm. And I, my brain tells me, I can't tell you the truth, whoever you happen to be. Mm -hmm. And because I'm checking all the boxes, I'm, I'm being a service, I'm going to meetings, I'm sponsoring X amount of people. And what would you know, what would you think if you knew the truth about what my head is telling me? And what that's going to do is it's going to get me drunk or dead <laughs> because my alcoholism is alive and well in my brain right now. And it wants me alone and then it wants me dead. And so, um, you know, it, I say this all the time and then I continue to do it myself, <laughs> but, um, speak up, yeah. uh, tell somebody what's going on. And, and, uh, you know, that vulnerability, it's been my experience even recently, uh, opens the door for God to come in and opens the door for other people to tell the truth and, and feel the freedom of being vulnerable themselves. And when that happens, it's possible to go on. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't happen, then it's possible. It's going to be the end. I, I just, I'm glad you talked. I'm glad you brought that up because we had Charlene on last week and, and she had talked about having some similar experience and, uh, you know, it's just easy to get caught up in like all of the gifts that we get from this, you know, and like, you know, my experience with it. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because sometimes I don't always like the perception that's out there that like that it's always going to be hard and it's always going to be a struggle. And each day is a fight to stay sober because that's not my experience. So like I like to talk about um, the good shit and all the gifts of mm-hmm. it. But the reality of it, too, is that this is a progressive illness and without continued treatment, like that thing happened and life happens, you know, and so that continues to grow and that happens. And I've had that experience, too, where I was like Mr. AA. And then when when things got when I when I started, you know, like really becoming disconnected and really getting around around the axle, I just didn't want to tell anybody I was like. Because that's I've portrayed this image to this community that I've got my shit handled, and the reality wasn't, you know, match the picture wasn't matching the sound, and mm-hmm. you know that was bad news for me, man. It was a couple of years of heartache and struggle and nearly losing everything as a result. So, yeah, absolutely, cool, man. Thanks. Thank you so much, Derek. I Thank really you. appreciate it, man. Yeah, it was fun.